intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. that on rollers. (laughs) It is heavy. Thank you, Millie, for reading that scripture. I trust that um, you've been enjoying and being blessed by the study in Ephesians by the uh, every Sunday coming back and getting into this book, and I hope you're reading ahead and and um, <clears throat> kind of trying to take it all in. Um, the goal of the elders would like to have uh, the goal of our teaching being a consistent uh, message from uh, Sunday to Sunday, uh, no matter what the person who is delivering the message. It's the passage that's important. And we all have our favorites and, and uh, what have you. And um, Derek Pack was, Derek was last Sunday, and, and I'm for a couple of Sundays, and then Glenn. And uh, that's not the important thing. The important thing is the truth that comes out of Scripture and uh, how we absorb that and, and what lessons we take to heart from it. So I pray that you have been being blessed by this study in Ephesians. Uh, my takeaway from it so far, uh, just in a broad sense, is that God has a plan, and God is working out that plan. And that plan is to reveal Himself, to um, manifest His glory, to share Himself, as it were, with um, His created beings and especially with mankind, to, to understand and begin to get a grasp of what a great and wonderful God and powerful God this is, he is, and yet realize that <clears throat> he's including us in his fellowship with himself and even in his glory in the future. We will be able to understand and fellowship with him in a way that <clears throat> is way beyond our our ability to understand right now. Scripture says we see through a <clears throat> glass dimly now, but then someday face to face. And I know that uh, <clears throat> for some of us, as we get older, that looking forward to that face to face is uh, seemingly more precious. But um, a few uh, weeks ago, um, we did a, a, a Sunday on God demonstrating His glory through His creation, His 
so we could see his power and his majesty and his intellect and his creativity and his beauty. Uh, he has shown himself to this world and to the unseen world uh, how great he is in six days. Six revelation, re revolutions of the earth creates light, creates the universe, creates sun, moon, stars, water, air, vegetation, life. And here we are some how many thousand years ago that was, I'm not sure. I personally think it's somewhere in the six to 10,000 year range ago when he was doing that. And now we keep discovering and going deeper and deeper into, the, into life and the mystery of organisms and, and life itself. And it just gets more and more and more wonderful and complicated and speaks and shouts of a designer. And he is the designer, he is the creator. He was showing his glory. And then, of course, the crown jewel of that creation was mankind. Uh, in his image, with mind and soul, ability to fellowship with God, created us perfect, created us holy, created us with that big vacuum in our soul that is only filled by him. And then, of course, he gave us the opportunity to love him, choose him, and as mankind, we forfeited that relationship with our own selfishness. That's been going on ever since. However, that didn't stop God's plan of revealing his glory. In fact, it was planned and gave him the opportunity to demonstrate now his greatest glory, how he could redeem man and what it would take for him to redeem man, to come down to this earth, to live with this creature that rebelled against him, to teach us and walk with us, to instruct us to love us, and then eventually pay the penalty for our sin and go to the cross. And as you read through Scripture, there's a, there's a lot of uh, mention in passages, and Millie read one this morning, where these things are not just for our sight, but for their, they're for the unseen rulers and principles of the, in the unseen world. So we really don't know all there is out there, of course, and we don't know all that we've been created for and all that we have been saved to be a witness to. And so we come to this morning to look at Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, and... Um, 
it's interesting because as I looked at this passage and all 13 verses, I <clears throat> here's how far I got. Are you there? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. <clears throat> That's as far as I want to go this morning. I want to talk about what that prompted in my own mind and in my own study. It made me begin to think of, did the plan go bad when we rebelled? No, it didn't. He had a redemptive plan. And that was to come to earth to die on the cross and be resurrected. But did the plan stop there? No, it didn't. And this week I've been thinking a little bit about letting my mind ponder and wander on this idea. If there were no credible, faithful witnesses following the resurrection of Christ, where would this world be? If there were no credible, faithful witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, where would this world be? You see, what they faced was a very irate Jewish religious establishment. And Paul was one of those, we know, and we'll look at that in a second, was one of those that was going out to capture, enslave, bring back to prison, and even kill Christians. That was the Jewish religious community. And then, as time would go on, it would move over into the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, with all its power and energy and resources, its, its command, would light Christians on fire with tar, would put them in and have the lions eat them, would crucify them couldn't think of enough ways to do Christians under. So what if as the resurrection took place and God, Christ made himself seen and available to those disciples, what if they didn't have what it took. You see, God had a plan, and I call it kind of the 12 and one plan. He took 12 ordinary men, and believe it or not, as you read through the Gospels, Christ's ministry was only about three years, and the time with these disciples in teaching and discipling and them actually being with him was only about half of that three years, about 18 months. So in 18 months period of time, he is going to train, discipline, teach, love these men, and then he is going to put in their hands the responsibility to spread the gospel throughout the world. It, 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 kind of overwhelms my thinking to think that Christ would leave heaven 
and come down and live on this earth and only have about three years of ministry of healing and teaching and whatnot, and then go to the cross, this absolute pivotal point in all our history, our human experience, that we might have salvation through the forgiveness of sins and turn that message over to 12 ordinary men plus one. That was God's plan. And actually, it's worked pretty well. It's worked pretty well. But you might look in your bulletin there and see um, Weston's drawing, and it is absolutely captures what I've been thinking this week. A captured heart. A captured heart. That's God's plan. He captured those 12 men's heart. One? No. He didn't buy in. He sold out. They replaced him with another one. So 12 went on. But then he added one more. He added Paul. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through about 9. I want to read this so that we just can get a feel for what is going on here in the great plan of God. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he didn't care, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. You see, Paul and Saul at this time, raised in the Jewish faith, believes there's a God, he believes in the resurrection, but he doesn't know that this God is in the person of Jesus. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither, he neither ate or drank. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. As we look at Scripture, and this portion of Scripture right here 
is the obvious players here are Paul and his message. If you read through these 13 verses, it's about Paul and who he is, and then it's about the message of the church, of the Gentile and the Jew becoming one. We'll touch on that a little more next Sunday. But as we look at Scripture, Derek encouraged us to do this, and I would encourage it as well. Where do we see Jesus in the Scripture? What, what, what do we learn about Jesus? We could read this and learn about Paul, and we'll look at some of those things. But what are we to learn about Jesus here? And as you read down through there, and I encourage you to do that this week, <clears throat> you might look at some things that would tell you a little bit about your Savior, a little bit about his plan, a, a little bit about the way he operates his plan, tell you a little bit about the things that, that are of high priority to him and things that are not such a high priority to him. And I think as we read Scripture that way, it, it helps us to understand how we respond to him. What are our, going to be our priorities and what are going to be our lesser priorities? Now, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, if you stop and think about that a minute, he was arrested by the Jewish leadership. They brought him into a trial under the Jewish ruling authority, not Rome. The Jews were able to have um, a little autonomy under the Roman government, and they could um, govern themselves. And so they're bringing Paul in. So he's arrested by the Jews. He's arrested by the, the Jewish leadership. Excuse me. So you would think he would say, I'm a prisoner of the Jewish people, or Jewish leadership, or the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> then, when they got into the trial, he asked to be, uh, he's a Roman citizen, so he asked to be tried as a Roman, get to see Caesar. So there's about four years here that he is a prisoner first of the Jews, and then of the Roman Empire. But he doesn't look at life that way. He says, I, Paul, am a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. After thinking about that, because he, he is, we are going to look at Paul as we see Paul through his life. He looks at himself, circumstances of life, as... They're all from God. They're from God. Second Corinthians, turn with me to that. I, I think that would be good for us to do. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. Or through probably a little longer than that. Maybe 12. Second Corinthians 4, 7. Here's what he says about himself 
as he's been ministering for the Lord, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned, he's been imprisoned, you name it, it's happened to him. And here's what he says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. This treasure. I'm, I, the Lord Jesus indwells me. I am his. I am one with Christ. I'm no longer this old man. I'm the new man in Christ. I have this treasure in jars of clay. This new man still lives in this old body. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If God redeemed us and gave us that million dollar, now it would have to be trillion dollar new body and new mind and all those things, um, we, we might have some pride or people would see that this is just those special people that are so smart when they come to Christ. No, it's just the old person. It, we're still living in these um, bodies. Still the same intellect. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What do I learn about Jesus here? What do I learn about Jesus' ways? If our prayer is to see him more clearly, understand him more deeply, enjoy him more thoroughly, delight in him more fully, love him more completely, what do I see in Scripture about what Christ is doing, what he did with Paul and what he's doing in our day as well? Well, today I'm going to tell you what is obvious. Christ is taking prisoners. He is capturing hearts. But there's something else that I've learned about that as I look at Paul's life. It does not seem that Christ is too concerned about Paul's physical well-being. It does not seem to me that he is too concerned about Paul's comfort. He is not too concerned to the fact that Paul is undergoing tribulation after tribulation after tribulation. In fact, Paul sees that as from the Lord. So God is not only taking a prisoner, he's not only capturing a heart, he is allowing that heart to go through pain and suffering and misery for the sake of the gospel. 
if we were, had a big sign that had the gospel, had gospel written across it, and we had a big stamp that we could dip down into something and stamp it on there, and this big stamp said truth, it's as God takes this big stamp that says truth, and he dips it in the blood of the disciples, he dips it in the blood of Paul, he dips it in the blood of the martyrs, he dips it in the blood of those early Christians, he dips it in the blood of Tyndall, who translated the Bible to English for us and then got hanged and burned at the stake for it. He dips it in that blood and he stamps it across the gospel. It says, truth. Truth. What authenticates this gospel for us? So much of it is the blood of the disciples, the blood of Paul, the blood of the martyrs, the whippings that Paul took. Now, I would just suggest this. If that's how God is operating, and that's how he was operating with them, are we thankful for that? Are we grateful? Can we even say, thank you, God, for what you put Paul through? Thank you, God, for those whippings, scourging, shipwrecks, snake bites, stoning that Paul went through. Yes. We need to be thankful for that. We need, to, we need to see those circumstances as absolutely necessary for us to know the Savior today. I look back at that, that time 2,000 years ago in that little old place called Jerusalem, and there's a crucifixion, and some man that lived there and he and a couple other guys are being crucified. And I can look back and I can see the, the lights go out for part of the afternoon. It becomes dark. And the, and, but that's all I know. That's all I know about that. Even if I can look back, that's all I know. The only reason I know what I know is because he captured those disciples' hearts. And he captured Paul's heart. And then he put them through persecution, pain, suffering. And he's done that down through the ages. Why? Because he loves us so much that he wants us to hear the message. He wants us to believe the message. And he loved those men so much that he would allow them suffer, looking to what, Paul says, this is going to be a short time. I'm going to be in glory with God forever, with my Savior forever. It's just going to be a short time. So you see, as I, as I look at that, I, I look at life a little differently. I, I look at the, what Jesus' modus operandi is oftentimes not quite as beautiful and comfortable as I might think it ought to be. Because the gospel goes out so often and so many times through suffering and pain and persecution. I think the key for us is to see that God is doing a work. 
And sometimes we're in a time of life when, as Paul said, I've lived with want and I've lived with plenty. And sometimes we live in a time of plenty. We may be going through that in our lives. And in a time of plenty, he still gets his message out. He got the message out in life and has always in people's, through people's lives in the time of plenty. When they're being blessed beyond measure. And they're giving and going and still sharing the good news of the gospel. But oftentimes, he brings things into our lives that are very, very difficult, very, very hard. It could be a broken heart because of relationship. It could be the pain of illness. It could be persecution as we look around the world. But he has a plan. We can't see his total plan and we often don't even see what our testi faithful testimony is. But he said it's revealing that God's wisdom, that the wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you ever think that something you might be going through and your faithfulness to God in that nobody else sees? And so you say, what difference does it make? And yet, the unseen world is saying it, and it's a testimony. Just last week, I had the opportunity to be over in Eastern California, Northeastern California, Nevada, and I got some time by myself out in the desert in there in, on the Nevada-California border. And as I was walking out through there in the rocks and juniper and sagebrush and what have you, out in that desert, there's little flowers blooming. Little flower here, little flower there, over there. There's flowers that nobody's going to see. Not at all. What's God doing with that stuff? Why did he do that? Is it all just for man? No, I believe it's for God himself. I believe he delights in his creation. I believe he delights in his creativity. I believe there's things that go on in this world that are beautiful that none of us ever see. And yet God sees them. And those unseen, unknown rulers and principalities see them as well. They see the glory of God in creation and they see the glory of God in his creator, man. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard times, saying, it's all right, God, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. I will be in eternity with you. I'll make it through it here. I ran across, and I'm going to share this with you this morning. I normally don't read anything quite this long from somebody else, but I'm going to do this this morning because I think it's so important. John Piper wrote um, something when he got word that he had prostate cancer. And 
he wrote an article <clears throat> um, that God was laying on his heart, I guess, at that time. And then another fellow who had prostate cancer has added some things. I'm not going to read all that. I'm next going to read what John Piper said. I write this on the eve of prostate surgery. I believe in God's power to heal by miracle and by medicine. I believe it is right and good to pray for both kinds of healing. Cancer is not wasted when it's healed by God. He gets the glory, and that is why cancer exists. So not to pray for healing may waste your cancer. But healing is not God's plan for everyone. And there are many other ways to waste your cancer. I am praying for myself and for you that we will not waste this pain. Now, I would suggest to you this is specifically cancer, but you can put anything else in there. Um, it could be the heartache in a family situation. It could be, it could be whatever it is that is causing you pain and struggle. I think this applies. Number one, there's ten of these. Number one, you will waste your cancer if you do not believe that it is designed for you by God. It will not do to say that God only uses our cancer but does not design it. What God permits, he permits for a reason, and that reason is his design. If God foresees molecular developments becoming cancer, he can stop it or not. If he does not, he has a purpose. Since he is infinitely wise, it is right to call this purpose a design. Satan is real and causes many pleasures and pains, but he is not ultimate. So when he strikes Job with boils, Job attributes it ultimately to God. And, inspired, and the inspired writer agrees. Here's what he says. They confronted him for the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. If you don't believe your cancer is designed for you by God, you will waste it. Yeah. That's what Paul said. I mean, uh, Job said, this is designed from God. Number two, you'll waste your cancer if you believe it is a curse and not a gift. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There is no enchantment against Jacob or divination against Israel. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It is not a punishment. Number three, you will waste your cancer if you seek comfort from your odds rather than from God. The design of God in your cancer is not to train to train you in the rationalistic human calculation of odds. The world gets comfort from their odds, not Christians. Some count their chariots, percentage of survival. Some count their horses, side effects of treatment. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. God's design is clear from 2 Corinthians 1.9. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely on ourselves, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The aim of God in your cancer is to knock props out from underneath your heart so that you will ultimately depend on him. Four, you'll waste your cancer if you refuse to think about death. We all will die. If Jesus postpones his return 
not to think about what, will it, what it will be like to leave this life and meet God is folly. It is better to go to the house of mourning, a funeral, than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of mankind, and the living will lay it to, to heart. Think about it. How can you lay it to heart if you won't think about it? Teach us to number our days, and we may get a heart of wisdom. Numbering your days means thinking about how few there are and that they will end. How will you get a heart of wisdom if you refuse to think about this? What a waste if we do not think about death. Number five, you'll waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. Satan and God's design in your cancer are not the same. Satan designs to destroy your love for Christ. God designs to deepen your love for Christ. Cancer does not win if you die. It wins if you fail to cherish Christ. God's design is to wean you off the breast of the world and feast you on the sufficiency of Christ. It is meant to help you say and feel I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And we know that therefore to live is Christ and to die is gain. Number six. What was that, seven? Stuck together. You'll waste your cancer if you spend too much time reading about cancer and not enough time reading about God. It's not wrong to know about cancer. Ignorance is not a virtue. But the lure to know more and more and the lack of zeal to know God more and more is symptomatic of unbelief. Cancer is meant to waken us to the reality of God. It is meant to put feelings and force behind the command. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Hosea 6.3. It is meant to waken us to the truth of Daniel 11.32. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. It is meant to make unshakable, indestructible oak trees out of us. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in, on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither in all that he, in all that he does, he prospers. What, what a waste of cancer if we read day and night about cancer and not about God. Seven, you'll waste your cancer if, you let you dry, if it lets you drive you into solitude instead of deepening your relationship with manifest affection. When Epaphroditus brought the gifts of Paul sent by the Philippian church, he became ill and almost died. Paul tells the Philippians, He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. What an amazing response. It does not say that they were distressed that he was ill, but that he was distressed because they heard that he was ill. He's worried about others. That is the kind of heart God is aiming to create with cancer, a deeply affectionate, caring heart for people. Don't waste your cancer by retreating yourself. You waste your cancer if you grieve as those who have no hope. Paul used this phrase in relation to those whose loved ones had died. 
We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, but you may not, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. There is a grief at death, even for the believer who dies. There is a temporary loss, loss of body, loss of loved ones here, loss of earthly ministry. But the grief is different. It is a perme it's permeated with hope. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Don't waste your cancer grieving as those who have no hope. Nine, you'll waste your cancer if you treat sin as casually as before. Are your besetting sins as attractive as they were before you had cancer? If so, you're wasting your cancer. Cancer is designed to destroy the appetite for sin. Pride, greed, lust, hatred, unforgiveness, impatience, laziness, procrastination, all these are the adversaries that cancer is meant to attack. Don't just think of battling against cancer. Also think of battling with cancer. All these things are worse enemies than cancer. Don't waste the power of cancer to crush these foes. Let the presence of eternity make the sins of time look as futile as they really are. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? 10. You will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth of the glory of Christ. Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. And that's what struck me as I read Ephesians 1 when Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not of Jews, not of Rome, these beatings and all the rest. These are all part of God's plan. Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. There are reasons for why we wind up where we do. Consider what Jesus said about painful, unplanned circumstances. This is coming from Luke. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So it is with cancer. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Christ is in, in, in infinitely worthy. Here's a golden opportunity to show that he is worth more than life. Don't waste it. Well, that's more than a mouthful. And I don't pretend to walk in somebody else's shoes. But I can learn that this loving God who loves us and died for us and makes a way of salvation is interested in our eternity more than he is our here and now. He wants us to be faithful to him. He wants to be sharing the good news. He wants us to live understanding that he is in control of our lives. Wrestle through a little bit of the rest of that chapter and we'll... <clears throat> Approach it again next week. Our Father and our God, I thank you for your love for us. I know that there are those that are suffering not only cancer, but other maladies. I know that there's those that are going through heartaches brought on by sin and, and brokenheartedness in homes. There's financial issues. There's, there's 
pain and suffering. There's people around the world, Lord, that are being captured, persecuted, even killed for you. So, Lord, help us keep our eyes the way Paul had his eyes, and that was on eternity. That was on service for you. He saw even his suffering as being a testimony to others. He did it for us, he says. And we thank you that he did that for us. We thank you for the disciples. We thank you for the others that have gone on before us. In Christ's name, amen.